We're in the book of Acts, chapter 8. This is our Wednesday edition of Shepherd's Chapel, and we're continuing in our study in Acts. Normally we do both Acts and Revelation. We're going to pass on Revelation today, but Lord willing, we'll be back to both Revelation and Acts next week. So we're in Acts chapter 8, and as we begin, uh, let's take a moment and ask God's help. Father, as we come to your word, we understand that it's one thing to read these words, it's another thing that you would make them alive to us and use them to change how we live in this world. Lord, we pray that you would instill in us the same confidence as those who went through the persecution in the early church. On the one hand, we can't imagine what that must have been like. On the other hand, we look at what's happening in the world around us and see a world gone mad, individuals who are willing to persecute the church, who are willing to stand against God's people to their own destruction. And we ask that you would help us to be bold as the early disciples were bold against a world gone mad some 2,000 years ago. We commit these things to you now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and teach us. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts chapter 8, we are um, reminded immediately of something that's just occurred in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, one of the um, early helpers, some would say one of the early deacons of the church, Stephen has been put to death. And at the very end of that particular chapter, let me just read a few of those verses. In Acts chapter 7, it reads this. Beginning at verse 57. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him, that's Stephen, and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin, and with that he died. And that's where the chapter ends. And it's interesting that those people who decided where chapter divisions would be Instead of just including the next few verses into the next chapter, they start chapter 8. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Again, I'm not a big fan of chapter divisions. Sometimes they work well. Sometimes they just don't work at all. But let me continue down through verse 8. A great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning.
But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Well, in the early church, in the second century, there was a man from Africa whose name was Tertullian. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers. And Tertullian had a particular quote that went like this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant by that was this. Jesus had said at Caesarea Philippi that he would build his church, that he would grow his church. And it's interesting because in the very first part of the book of Acts, we see some downright exciting things happening. We see Peter speaking at the day of Pentecost, and that very first day while he's preaching, 3,000 people become converted to Christianity. A little bit later, there's more preaching, and an additional couple of thousand become converts to Christianity. Now imagine, here you are, a Jew, believing in Judaism, in Jerusalem, and you see this upstart religion, if you will, coming on the scene, borrowing from your Old Testament scriptures, and as a result of preaching that this Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures, now individuals are abandoning what they've believed all their lives and going for this newfangled religion. That's what's happening. And some people are fed up with it, and they're just not going to let it happen. They're not going to let it happen without a fight. And one of those people that was convinced that he was doing the Lord's will was a very zealous Jew by the name of Saul. Saul, in fact, is the guy you might say, hey, you're here to stone Stephen? Fine, take off your, your outer robe, you know, just set it here. I'll keep watch of it. You'll be able to throw the stones better. By the way, here's some stones. See those people over there? They have Stephen. They're going to stone him to death. And that's exactly what was happening. And that's how we're introduced to Saul. Saul was one of the witnesses. And he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. At this juncture, little do we realize that God later is going to visit face to face. Jesus himself is going to visit Saul face to face. And as a result of his interaction with Saul, Saul is going to become converted and become the great apostle Paul.
But if you think that this episode in Saul's life was ever forgotten after he became a Christian, I want you to think again about that. And if you have a Bible, feel free to turn to Acts chapter 21. The Apostle Paul there, Saul, who's now become Paul, is speaking to a crowd. And beginning in chapter 21, verse 37, we pick up the narrative and we're going to go right into chapter 20, uh, I, I, chapter 21, verse 37. We're going to go right into chapter 22. As Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, May I have a word with you? Do you speak Greek? The commander asked, surprised. Aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? No, Paul replied. I'm a Jew, a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is an important city. Please, let me talk to these people. The commander agreed. So Paul stood on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. Soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd, and he addressed them in their own native language, Aramaic. You see, Paul is no slouch. Paul knows Greek. Paul knows Aramaic. Paul knows Hebrew. Paul is a scholar of the Old Testament, and by now he is a scholar of what we will know as the New Testament. In fact, becomes the author of a good bit of the New Testament. But again, we're met with a pesky chapter division, so eliminate that chapter division and go right into chapter 22, and Paul is still speaking. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When you heard him speaking, when they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the Jewish scholars of the day. If you wanted to learn Judaism, if you wanted to learn theology, Gamaliel was one of the men that you would study under. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way. We sometimes forget that before people were called Christians, they were simply called followers of the way. As a matter of fact, they aren't called Christians in the book of Acts until an episode in the city of Antioch. And it's there that we're told that the people of the way, the followers of the way, were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. I persecuted the followers of the way 
pounding some to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. He was an equal opportunity persecutor. It didn't matter to him, male or female, if you stand for Jesus, I'm going to see that you're put to death. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. Punished for what? Punished for preaching the gospel. You see, this is foreign to the way we think in America because we haven't experienced this. My wife has reminded me on more than a few occasions in recent weeks that in Canada, there are individuals who have been thrown in jail in recent weeks simply for preaching the gospel, simply for continuing to conduct church services. A week does not go by that I'm not reading something on either the Aquila Report or Christian Post or some similar website where Christians around the world are being put to death. Pastors around the world are being put to death. Why? For preaching the gospel. It's happening. And it's going to continue to happen more and more. And I hope I'm wrong, but I think the day will come that we will see persecution happening in the United States as well. Unregenerate mankind isn't interested in having a book saying this is how you ought to live. And if you don't live like this, God is going to send you to hell. Unregenerate mankind doesn't like that message. It's not consumer friendly by any stretch. Now let me continue. Verse 6. As I was on the road, approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the voice said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking through me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very moment I could see him. Then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, Hurry! 
Leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argue, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. The Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. See, Stephen, or rather Paul, understood. They know who I am. They know what I was. I was the one persecuting your church. Lord, number one, I'm not worthy. Number two, even if that's what you want me to do. I'm going to be in harm's way. And Jesus doesn't relent. He says, go. There's work to be done, and I'm sending you. And he goes. But back to Ch Acts chapter 8. Here, we don't see any of that. We simply see Saul. It says after Stephen is taken and subsequently buried, Saul is going to destroy the church, and God is going to use the persecution to do what? To move his people off of the place of contentment. Again, what has happened? Let's review for a moment. Jesus has gone up into glory. And before Jesus went, what did he say? He said, go into all the world. And what are they doing? They're not going into all the world. They're all hanging out in Jerusalem. So what does God do? God allows the persecution to happen in the early church. And in the process of doing that, what does he do? They begin to scatter. Some, perhaps, they begin to run for their lives. Other individuals, they run with a different kind of purpose than that. But they're not going to stay in Jerusalem. And what we have is, again, a situation in which that the, these words begin with a forceful persecution this is not just something, you stop your preaching, and if you don't, there's going to be fines. It's not that. It's There's going to be consequences. We're going to kill you. That's how forceful the persecution is. We're going to kill you. You see, Stephen, he's just the tip of the iceberg. We'll kill all of you if we have to. There's no way we're going to have you folks blaspheming against God and against Moses and against the temple and against the law. You saw what we did with him. We'll do it again. And you have individuals besides Saul who are zealously uh, going after these individuals. Well, there's work to be done first. It says, verse 2, devout men came and buried Stephen and there was great mourning. 
this was a real heartache. I mean, Stephen had just been called to serve in the church, and no sooner that than he gives a wonderful sermon, and he's put to death. Jesus, at least, had three years before he was put to death, not Stephen. But there were others besides Stephen. And one of those others that was called at the same time that Stephen was to serve the brothers and sisters in the early church was an individual by the name of Philip. Philip, as he's introduced here again after chapter 6, it says he went into the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Later on, I believe it's in chapter 21, we meet up with Philip again. Philip then is known as Philip the Evangelist. And as an evangelist, he was part of the early church as far as one of the so-called people gifts of the church. The people gifts again, for those who have heard me speak on this before, in addition to the gifts of healing and tongues and, and uh, speaking in tongues and so forth, there's people gifts, the people gifts being apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. The first two, apostles and prophets, are what are called foundational gifts, but within the context of church life and church building throughout the church age, I believe that the gift of evangelist and the gift of pastor teacher is something that continues. And a little bit later, Philip becomes known as Philip the Evangelist. Well, one of the things about Philip was he was probably as capable a preacher as Stephen. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. How is it that he did miraculous signs? Well, the signs of the apostles were things that were practiced not simply by the apostles, but to those through whom the apostles passed on certain gifts. And in this particular case, it says certain miraculous signs which he did. And then it elaborates. Many evil spirits were cast out. And when an evil spirit was cast out, it wasn't something like this where Philip would have said, okay, you have an evil spirit cast out and be done with. Apparently, it must have been uh, tremendously upsetting for some. Notice the words that the Holy Spirit chooses to use. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. Screaming. Perhaps reminiscent of that episode when Jesus is speaking with the man with the evil spirits in him that identify themselves as Legion. What's your name? Our name is Legion, for we are many. And it's, you know, have you come to torment us before our time? Don't cast us in the abyss. See, one thing about the demonic world is they know that their doom is sure, as Martin Luther would say. 
in his hand. A mighty fortress is our God. But nevertheless, whether it's sure or not, there's also a time for it. And we don't want you to cast us out and into the abyss before our time. So they're screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. Imagine that. Imagine that. You know, there have been uh, things over years and over decades of faith healers. And I don't know what to say about them other than I think in most cases they're just phony. But in the first century, Philip was a faith healer. There were individuals that came to him in the same way that individuals came to Jesus to be healed. And they were healed. And as a result of his ministry, it says there was great joy in that city. I have a friend and recently was asked a question by this friend. Would I describe myself as happy? And I said, I don't know that, I mean, there are certain people and certain things that make me happy, but I would like to think of myself more from the standpoint of joyful or content. And that then raised the next question, which was, what's the difference? And I said, things make us happy momentarily, but joyfulness is a gift from God. And joyfulness, a person can be dying and still be joyful. A person can be destitute. A person can be bankrupt and still joyful. Because joyfulness is something that God himself gives to people. It is not something that is, while it may be affected by circumstance, circumstances, it's not conditioned. Uh, on circumstances in that if those circumstances change you're going to lose that joyfulness but one thing is clear I think as we read the New Testament especially that if a person experiences salvation there really ought to be as a byproduct in their life joyfulness and if there isn't then I don't know that they really understand what it is they are being saved from in the process. You know, when people are given the cheap version of the gospel, and the cheap version can be reduced to four spiritual laws or, or a quick summary of the gospel without having any real sense of where do I stand before God? You know, here is this perfect God. He expects perfection. And if I don't give him perfection, He's essentially going to destroy me. And, you know, sinful man wants to argue, and, well, that's not fair, and I don't like that God. But to the individual, it clearly understands that their life has been a great offense against a holy God. Yet God has provided a solution for what otherwise would be eternal misery, and then are saved from that, there ought to be joyfulness. There ought to be joyfulness. Forceful persecution.
creates, in this case, powerful preaching. These individuals were not running away with their tails between their legs. And then the result of that, another byproduct of that, we might say it this way, was fruit-bearing or good works. Uh, as one preacher put it, fruitful, fruitful productivity. I was talking with someone the other day. They were telling me about being a Christian and what that meant. And I asked the question, how ought that to translate in your life? And they, they looked at me kind of puzzled. They said, what do you mean, how ought that to translate in my life? And I said, are people able to recognize that you're a Christian simply by your living? And they said, I don't really know. And I said, oh, I, th I think the Bible certainly teaches that, doesn't it? I mean, there really ought to be a difference between you, if you're a Christian, and the people in the world. In addition to joyfulness, there ought to be plenty of good works. Not just because you have a, a nice personality. I'm talking about more than personality. You're the person that looks for ways to love your neighbor. You hear what the scriptures say about loving your enemy and are concerned about doing it, not simply talking about it. And I think for the real Christian, and we might say it that way, for the real Christian, there ought to be real Christian living. And if there's not real Christian living, if there's not this fruitful productivity in one's life, then I think there ought to at least be a question in terms of how real is my profession of faith. But the important thing to remember about this whole episode here, as we begin in chapter 8, is this. God is using what seems at first glance like a bad thing, the persecution of the church, to do what? To spread the gospel. This last year has been interesting. Churches have been shut down. I read a statistic the other day, and quite frankly, I think the number is probably low. The statistic that I read was about 20, it's estimated that 25% of the people that used to go to church won't be going to churches anymore. They're just going to stop. I think the number's probably low. I think it might be even as high as 50%. Why is that? It may be because those people weren't Christians to begin with. They were just habitual in going to church. But I say that because there ought to be a sense that if God closes a door, we look for another door to open. I don't know that I ever really would have seriously thought doing a YouTube channel. I, I don't know that I really ever seriously would have thought of doing a Spotify channel. 
But now we're doing that, and why were we doing that? We're doing that because that started as a result of we weren't meeting together. Now we are meeting, but now in addition to meeting on Sunday, we have a couple of other avenues where we're getting the word out. And whereas we started two years ago in October, it'll be, you know, here we are, we're coming up on two years, and while we still have small numbers on Sunday, 25, 30 people, in addition to that, there's 100 plus other people from different parts of who knows where that are watching either on YouTube or listening on Spotify, and we're getting around campus here just from some folks that are more and more interested in spreading that word in ways that I couldn't have imagined before. And I'm happy with that. The next challenge, I think, will be that we spread beyond the campus of Lamb and broaden that to the community here. How do we do that within this little town? Pray. Pray. Pray that we would influence the people of this town with our good works. Pray that we would influence the people of this town with our Christianity in tangible ways. Pray that we would influence the people of this town with the message that they can hear on YouTube, that they can hear on Spotify, that they can see actively in your individual lives and so forth. The other day I was talking to someone about Susanna Wesley. And generally when you talk about the Wesleys, Susanna Wesley's name doesn't come up. The names that generally come up are Charles Wesley and John Wesley. After all, Susanna was just their mother. But she was a mother that prayed for her children. She had 19 children. I believe 11 of them died by the time they were two or three years old. Back then, a lot of folks just had a lot of kids, and a lot of kids died either in childbirth or, or not too long into infancy. But one of the things that Susanna Wesley did was she always prayed for her children. And sometimes she just couldn't even get a break in terms of just being able to pray without distraction, so it was said that what she would do was she would just take her apron that she wore in the kitchen, and she would take the apron and pull it up over her head. And when she did that, her kids understood, Mommy is praying, we need to be silent. And she prayed for her children. And two of those children became great in the eyes of the Lord, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist Church. Charles Wesley, one of the greatest hymn writers ever, he wrote some 5,000 hymns. We may never know much about Susanna Wesley, but Susanna Wesley was the great influence behind Charles and John Wesley. I have no idea what impact you'll have on the people that you come in contact with. Alan, when you're down in Devon, you lead a holy Christian life because more than anything, the people that you come in contact with when they're struggling with their addictions, what they need to see is a holy man. You know, not going around bopping people over the head with a Bible, 
but living a life that says, I believe these things. Amy, when you're interacting with people in Central, just live your life in a way that just reflects Christ. And when you go home, you pray for those individuals. And again, you know, we don't know the impact that that will have. There's a, a hymn that's among one of my favorites. And it's um, the line, and it goes, Thank you uh, for giving to the Lord. I was a life that was changed. And um, in that particular hymn, it's an individual who goes into glory. And when they go into glory, they see Jesus, of course. But in addition to that, they see an old Sunday school teacher. And they see an old pastor. Or they see an old relative. And they go up to them and say, thank you for giving to the Lord. I was a life that was changed. Philip was one of those lives. I imagine Stephen for Saul was one of those lives as well in that Saul saw, saw firsthand this individual that he was allowing to be stoned to death, praying like Jesus did, Father, forgive them, for they know not, they, they know not what they do. Well, Lord willing, we'll begin picking this up again with chapter uh, 8 and verse 9 and continue our study in the book of Acts. Thank you for coming.